My text, and I'm, I'm really going to, uh, for all three of my talks, I'm going to be in the same area, same text, Genesis 2 and 3, and Romans 3. Not going to go through any kind of detailed uh, exposition of those texts, but pulling out some topics that I'm going to talk to you about. And I'm going to read in just a moment Genesis chapter, some of Genesis chapter 3. And then Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. Um, but to begin with, room there. To begin with, I want to tell you, man is created hungry. That, that, to say that man is created hungry is to say that man is created needy. Having needs and drives to meet those needs are not in themselves sinful. They don't reveal some deficiency in our character. They reveal the fact that we are indeed creatures, that creatures dependent upon our Creator, the one who supplies all of our needs. Now, whenever we think of such needs, we probably think of things such as food and water and air and etc., things like that. But those are certainly needs. But there are other needs that we have as well. And in my talk, I want to focus on three specific needs that we have as creatures and show you how our drive to meet those needs affects our daily lives. These needs and our attainment of them defines what matters in life. These needs are glory, righteousness, and security. All right? These are needs that we have before God and in the world. They define us and they define our mission. They are necessary for us to be fully human. Should I pose for these? Yes. There you go. You're not going to like that. <laughs> I'm not going to like that. Um, they are necessary for us to be fully human, at peace with God, and relating properly to the creation around us. It is only as these needs are met in all of their various interrelated dimensions that your life will matter, both objectively, that is, in the way that God defines what matters, reality, and subjectively in the sense of fulfillment. So when we're talking about a life that matters, I'm dealing with those two areas. What is reality? What really matters? What does God define as what really matters? And then what is that sense of fulfillment? What is that sense that uh, things really do matter in life? And those things correspond to one another. God originally provided and promised growth in all three of these gifts of grace in creation. And as such, we need them as much as we need food, we need water. These three gifts and the pursuit of them, again, are what make life matter. This is not all that makes life matter, but I, I have to focus on three things. So these three gifts tell me who I am and what matters in life. And so I'm going to talk about these and the desire for them and the pursuit of them and the reality that, uh, that we have in Christ for these things and why you do what you do and, and how these things make your life matter. Now, these are not... Three tricks. They're not three steps. They're not three keys to making a life that matters. When I was first asked to speak, started looking at books and things like that about, you know, a life that matters. And people have keys. They have steps. They have all these types of things. The, what I'm dealing with is your fundamental identity as the image of God. And therefore, these are inescapable realities. So everything you think and do is inexorably bound up with the need and pursuit of glory, righteousness, and security. 
in some form or fashion because they are what make your life matter. Subjective hunger comes from a, an objective reality. You feel this way because you are this way. And there's, there's no reason to the particular order in which I'm dealing with these, but I'm going to deal, first of all, with the gift of glory. And I'm going to begin by reading in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, this is not the only part of the creation account that I'm going to deal with, but uh, it's a good jumping off place and uh, help, will help us understand. In Genesis chapter 3, and we'll read the first 13 verses. And now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that Yahweh God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat, uh, when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God among the trees of the garden. Yahweh God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then Yahweh God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now in Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith, through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. So, we're going to begin with the gift of glory. We are going to answer several questions. I hope to get to all of them. Uh, What is glory? How does sin distort glory in our lives? And how has Christ restored glory? And then how do we move from glory to glory? That is, how do we pursue and attain glory righteously? And I want to deal with that specifically as it deals with men and women. For a couple of, for a couple of these questions, we're going to, we could go into numerous directions about where we see certain things in life. I, I'm going to be focusing on how we see it, especially in 18 to 29-year-old singles who happen to be a particular type of Reformed Christian. 
which is not easy. Uh, Randy and I were talking about that earlier. Uh, as pastors, we usually kind of shotgun. We have all these demographics in the church. And to really focus in on this was a challenge for me. I hope, hopefully, uh, I've met the challenge here. But for a summary here, and I am digging a little deep. I expect this crowd to, um, to be able to understand this and be challenged by it. So, uh, a summary here. From the beginning, God has given us the gift of glory and the hunger or the desire and the need to be glorified. Sin twists God's good gifts and we seek to satisfy our hunger for glory in all the wrong places and way, all the wrong places in all the wrong ways, creating shame. Christ glorifies us in himself, covering our shame with his glory. And sets us on the path to move from glory to glory. That's a long summary. Alright? But hopefully as we unpack it, you'll understand it. So from the beginning, God created us with the need and the hunger for glory and more glory. We see this, we see this need along with others in Genesis chapter 3. First, man was created with and promised glory. In Hebrew, the word glory refers to weightiness. Basically, whatever adds weight to a man is glorious. Therefore, pizza is glorious, right? Okay. That's not quite, the, not quite the weight that I'm talking about, even though pizza is glorious. Uh, glory is that which enhances a man, making him more beautiful, giving him more responsibility, more power, more authority, more dominion. Glory is making someone more than he was before, making him better than he was before. Man is created... With a certain type of glory. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Man is created glorious, but he's not created as glorious as he could be, or as he would be, or as God intended him to be. Man was created with glory, but he was also created to mature. Moving from glory to glory. This was something that was true even before sin entered the world. Psalm 8 tells us what glory is. God made man a little lower than the angels, crowning him with glory and honor, giving him dominion over the creatures. He has authority. He has rule. He has power. And he is to use these things to make things more beautiful and to be fruitful, and which in turn will give him more responsibility over the world. See, the more you accomplish, the more responsibility you have. That is all wrapped up in what it means to have glory. Now, this crowning, this crowning with glory begins in the original creation. And it involves two things specifically. The creation of the woman and the call to progressive dominion. Originally, man was created as a singular person. We heard it, about, we heard it read this morning, Pastor Alexander. God said that it, it was not good for man to be alone, so he created the woman. And this was an act of glorification. God made man more than he was, made him more beautiful than he was, gave him more responsibility. This is not simply a deduction. Paul tells us plainly in 1 Corinthians 11.7 that the woman is the glory of the man. And through the woman, man is glorified and his glory will increase as children are born, as they are fruitful and multiply. So through fruitfulness and multiplication, man will grow more and more glorious until all of the earth is full of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. Through all of these things, the man becomes more than he was. He becomes more glorious. 
Also, man was originally created and placed in an already prepared garden on the east side of the land of Eden. But when God created man, he told him to have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over everything that, everything that moves on the earth in Genesis 1. In Psalm 8, once again, verses 5 and 6, glory and dominion are parallel. For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. In Hebrews 2, verses 7 through 9, quoting Psalm 8, the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus was crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering and death, and all things are being put under his feet. Alright? So he's taking dominion. He's ruling. So glory has to do with dominion. It has to do with rule. Man was created to move from glory to glory, eventually making the world glorious, better, more than it was before. And this would be the glory of man. Created in the image of an all-glorious God, man is created with an insatiable hunger for glory. He is created with an insatiable hunger for more. To be more, to do more, to have more. Okay, To take on more responsibility, to have more authority, to be better than he is right now, to be more beautiful in some way, to be more powerful. All of this is all this to say the pursuit of glory is in the warp and woof of the fabric of who we are. We are created in the image of a glorious God. And we have the compulsion to seek glory that can come in many different forms. Anything that adds weight to our character before the eyes of others is glory. We want to be more. We want to have more. Again, this is God-given desire. And I, we'll talk in a moment about how it's perverted. But desiring glory is a good thing. It is God-given. It's like Jesus praying to the Father in Genesis 17. He prays, glorify me. And we're to pray with him in that. Not that just Jesus himself without us, but in Christ, that God would glorify us so that we can participate with him in his glory, that we can glorify him just as he does with the Father. We legitimately may pray this way. We should pray this way. And whether you recognize it or not, the pursuit of glory and its attainment give purpose to your life. The possession of glory makes your life matter because glory's gift and pursuit define your God-given mission. This is part of who you are. This is part of why you're made. This is part of your purpose in life, your purpose in the world. The answer is not to deny the hunger, but to direct it toward its proper ends. Alright? Remember, sin, sin perverts things. Sin twists things. So any desire that you have, if it's a perverted desire, is twisting something God has already given you. Alright? Your desire for glory can be twisted... So it needs to be made right, and it needs to be directed toward its proper end. We still have, we still have, a, we still desire glory, even though we've fallen, and we can't escape it because this is the way we are created. But our, again, but our pursuit is all twisted. What what sin does is pervert our understanding of glory and our pursuit of glory. Sin strips us of glory, and that leaves us in a place of its opposite, which is shame. And you hear, if you go through the Psalms, and if you even go through Romans, what the psalmists, what the biblical writers don't want 
is to be put to shame. That involves a lot more than a feeling of shame. It involves a judicial pronouncement. But it's the antithesis of glory. Okay? I don't want to be put to shame. I want to be exalted. Sin, when getting into this place of shame, sin, instead of telling us, directing us toward proper glory, causes us to pursue perverted glory apart from God's provision. Your creation in God's image creates a hunger for glory, but sin drives you to places of famine so that your hunger is never satisfied. You're always seeking more. We see it in the first sin. When God came to meet with man and the woman at the center of the garden, and He didn't find them there. What happened in the garden when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden tree? First, their eyes were opened, and they realized they were naked. When they were created, they were created naked and unashamed. When they sinned, their eyes were opened and their glory was turned to shame. Their, this, problem, this, their original, this wasn't a problem in their immaturity. Seeing one another in this light. They were basically created adult babies, brought into this world naked, as I said, and not ashamed. And that's the way it was supposed to be. When they grew up, they would eventually be covered with clothes, just like our babies now they don't mind running around naked. Okay? Then you become aware as you get older. Hopefully you still don't run around naked in your houses. Okay? Uh, but you become aware and you cover yourself up. Well, Adam and Eve were going to do the same thing. That it, this is, this is, there are lots of ways that we know this is going to happen, but one of the, the, the primary way we know this is going to happen is when we look at Christ's resurrected glory. John does not see him in Revelation 1 as the great naked man. He is clothed in glorious clothes. All right? So he is the man who has been clothed with glory and honor. Nakedness was taken care of at the cross. Greater glory means being vested. It means being clothed with glorious clothes. Psalm 104 says that God is clothed with His creation. It is His glory. Throughout Scripture, clothes are associated with glory. There is no place that is clearer uh, about this than when God prescribes clothes for the high priest. He is, he is to have robes of glory and beauty. Clothes glorify a person. The, the original glory of the man was distorted and man sought out his own glory. So, what did he again, what did he do as soon as he saw that he was naked? He sought to glorify himself. He sought to put clothes on himself. And he did this by sewing fig leaves together and covering those places of shame on their body, which was their private parts. Sin sought to make glory for itself outside of God's provision in order to hide their shame. Many of our sins can be traced to the pursuit of glory. God's way is to grant glory in his time and in his way. But man seeks out his own devices, trying to seize God's gifts in his own time and on his own terms. Now, all three of these gifts, as you're going to see, as I, I'm going to reiterate, uh, they're, they're all very closely related, and so I'm going to hit some of the same topics just from different angles. But man does pursue glory. Again, glory is what makes me look good. What makes me more beautiful? What makes my character more weighty? Or at least what I think makes me look good. That vision of glory can be terribly dis 
distorted. Like a man thinking a man bun in skinny jeans make him really look good. Alright? Uh, that's distorted. That's exactly. That's distorted glory. Now when you see it, you can say, yes, I see what he's doing. He's pursuing glory, but it's very distorted. Sin distorts our hunger and vision of glory. We wanting us to grasp the wrong things or the right things at the wrong time. So what are some of the ways that sin distorts glory? in our pursuit of it. So just put some legs on this. We want fame. To put that another way, we want a name. We want people to know our name. Is there a problem with that? No. God promised to make Abraham's name great in Genesis chapter 12. But how, do, how can we do it? We try short circuits. We get it through social media from being overly provocative. That doesn't happen too much in the reform world. People in the reform world don't generally tend to be provocative, but some people... I, that's a joke. That's, uh, <laughs> I knew some of the old guys would get that. Uh, but we can tend to be overly provocative or anything that will attract immediate attention. And we measure ourselves, we measure our glory by likes and retweets and things such as that, or whatever happens on Instagram. I had no idea. All right. God wants us to be fruitful, not just with children, but economically. We can pursue this illegitimately, using shady or sinful ways to achieve, or we can make money an idol. We legitimately desire the glory of marriage, but it becomes an idol when my life only matters if I'm married. I define my life in terms of being single and married. Taking shortcuts to grab attention through the way that I dress, showing off, and other things stem in part from wanting to be recognized is a hunger for glory. I want to be known. I want to have more. I want to be more. Well, God wants you to have all of these things at the right time and in the right way. If and when you don't, your glory turns to shame. Maybe not immediately, but eventually. There may be some temporary satisfaction, but it's not the sustained growing glory. For example, if you invest all of your glory capital, so to speak, in your physical appearance, what happens as you age? Proverbs 31 says beauty is vapor. You're going to be left starving at the end. This doesn't mean that outward beauty means nothing, but it needs to be kept in perspective. I'll talk about more of that later. But your glory turns to shame. Think about those beauties, those aging beauties distorting themselves through surgeries and now looking like the Joker. They're so pulled, you know. They're laughed at. They're scorned. Their glory is turned to shame. This is the case in pursuing glory in a sinful manner. The pursuit of glory outside of God's design always brings shame. Sin provides shame in the place of glory and then seeks to hide that shame by conjured up, self-made glory. Man seeks glory to cover his shame like the man and the woman with the fig leaves. And it becomes a vicious cycle of trying to cover shame by adding more and more layers of fig leaf glory, which is inadequate to deal with the shame. This is only a, a form of hiding from God. In his excellent book, Shame Interrupted by Ed Welch, he has a helpful definition of shame. Shame is the deep sense, and I quote here, shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, 
or something associated with you. You feel exposed and humiliated. Or to strengthen the language, you are disgraced because you acted less than human. You were treated as if you were less than human. Or you were associated with something less than human. And there are witnesses. It is that sense that you are unworthy, that you're standing before others completely exposed in your unworthiness. And they're laughing at you. Shame comes with the feeling of embarrassment. For example, someone makes you look stupid or ignorant when what you want is praise for your intellectual prowess. Shame seeks to cover itself by either hiding from people involved or responds with envy that will seek to tear the glory of another down by edifying itself. Sometimes these two sides, these are two sides of the same coin. Shame will avoid the other person, afraid because the other person's presence feels like light that shines on a darkness. In the shadows of shame, envy begins to build. Envy was a sin that crucified Christ, according to Matthew 27:18. Jesus exposed the Jewish leaders and the people were following him. They had to destroy his glory in order to cover their own shame. Instead of participating in the glory of Christ, they chose to pursue their own glory. This is the root of much sin. Sin that causes friction among brothers and sisters in Christ. If we perceive that someone is doing something better than us, or we think that they, they think they're better than us, or, we, or they really are better than us, we either try to escape and hide from the situation or out of envy we try to destroy them and build up ourselves. When you catch yourself doing this or see someone else doing it, you know now what is happening. You're pursuing glory to cover your own shame. The way we are taking dominion, the way we are ordering our world, the schools we are attending, our goals, etc., this is the way. This is the way you do it. This is the way you pursue glory. All other ways are illegitimate. If you're not doing what I'm doing, you're beneath me. That's the way we try to cover up our shame in the pursuit of glory. Anything different is a threat that is meant to expose me in my nakedness. Somebody says something offhand and you take it as an insult. You're overly sensitive. Because you feel shameful. And anything somebody says is, is intended, you think, to expose your nakedness, reveal your vulnerabilities, reveal your weaknesses. People are after me to take my glory, to laugh at me, to look down on me, to tell me I don't matter. I'm not important. We will pursue glory by over-inflating ourselves, trying to push ourselves forward, not waiting to be exalted. I must be in control. I must rule because I must be recognized. I must act out. I must be the clown so that people will recognize me. It might be all in good fun, but it could be a twisted craving for attention, a pursuit of glory. All of this is an attempt to cover up the shame that we know is a reality at some level in our lives because all of us stand in some place of shame. We are sinners and therefore we are inglorious and we all know it. That's reality. Everybody in the world knows it too. Not just about us, but about themselves. 
It is reality. It is built into them. They know it. And they're trying to cover it up. More than that, we want to be God. And we're not. We know we can't. Nevertheless, we still try to pursue it. Left in our sin, we will trample others to do anything that we have to do to, to achieve glory and cover up this shame. And shame, this kind of shame then makes you impotent. Powerless to do anything worth doing. Relating uh, and taking dominion as you were created to do. Because when you're filled with shame, then you're always worried about someone exposing you. And it makes you powerless. I can't do this. If I do this, someone will see that I am not blank. I will be embarrassed. People will laugh at me. They will see that I'm not smart. That I'm not beautiful. That I'm not this. That I'm not that. And so I won't take risks. I won't do things. Because of my shame. You won't pursue glory as you should, and consequently you will avoid responsibility, responsibilities and greater responsibilities. And you'll be satisfied just right where you are. Glory was originally given by God in creation. Now in, in recreation, in Christ Jesus, God has graciously provided us glory. We are clothed in Christ. Paul tells us in some form or fashion in Romans 3 that God has provided glory through Christ Jesus. He tells us explicitly in Romans 8. He became our shame so that we could be clothed with His glory. The glory from which we fell short is now ours in Christ. One common source of shame among humans in general, and Christians in particular, is the shame that comes from sexual sins. Whether sins that I have committed, sexual intercourse, oral sex, pornography, or the sins committed against me, sexual abuse, I don't know what's going on with this group. I don't assume anything. I've been a pastor long enough to know, though, that, that these are realities even in the best of families and even in the best of churches. Okay? Sexual sins deal with the original source of shame in our body. It's one of the reasons why it is so shameful to be either sexually active or sexually abused. These are the parts that Adam and Eve covered up in the beginning. They are the original parts, uh, sources of our shame. Paul talks about that also in Philippians. Their glory has become their shame uh, when he's talking about circumcision. So, I don't, I don't know what you have done or what has been done to you, but you need to know that in Christ, your shame is covered you don't have to be ashamed before God. And that prepares you not to be ashamed before a spouse in the future. In Christ, your nakedness is clothed. You are glorified. You have been forgiven. There is no need for the domination of shame. Your life matters. You are glorious in Christ. If you're wrestling with those issues, you need to talk to your pastor and get help. No, we struggle with shame because sin is still a reality in our lives. God has glorified us in Christ and whoever is loyal to Christ, the scripture says, will not be put to shame. Even in our greatest points of vulnerability, our nakedness before God, we no longer have to be ashamed. He knows us through and through and there is no reason to hide. And there is no fig leaves that can cover it up anyway. Okay? He's not laughing at you. 
God giving us the gift of His grace and glory then frees us to act toward others in a way that the pursuit of glory doesn't have to be an issue. I already have it in some sense. God has glorified me. He's granted it to me and He will grant more in His time. Therefore, I don't have to seize it. It is a gift of His grace. And this means that I really don't have to I really don't have to have this controlling compulsion to be glorified in your eyes in any way possible. I don't have to assert myself to impress you so that you will praise me or stand in awe of me. I will just take God's time, God's way, and I will do what He says, and when it comes, it comes. Having glory in Christ means that I can act humbly before you and toward you, even though... even. Even that I, that I can esteem your needs above, uh, above my own comforts. And neither do I have to be envious or tear you, your glory down in order to exalt myself. God has granted and will grant me glory at the proper time, and I can wait. This also means that you can pursue what God has called you to pursue in taking dominion in creation. You are not hiding. You're not worried about being exposed. The granting of this glory gives you boldness to do what God's called you to do. So understand that you are clothed in Christ. Alright? So we've got some of the big picture here. So how do, what do we do with it now? How do we move from glory to glory? Once covered in Christ, having no shame before the Father, we're now in a position to grow. We're now in a position to mature in glory. How do we do it? Again, trying to deal more specifically with where you are in life right now rather than throwing out a bunch of principal platitudes. God's gifts, all of God's gifts, are responsibilities. Everything He puts in your hand is a responsibility that He's given you. When God gives glory, He expects you to cultivate it into greater glory. That's what He expects with all of His investments in you. They are a stewardship. He expects to receive them back with interest. I'll say this probably, I'll probably refer to this parable, maybe in all three of my talks, but in Matthew 25, that's what the Lord of the house, when he left his servants with different talents, he expects interest on what he left. And the servant who didn't work, who didn't cultivate, and who didn't give it interest, was considered a wicked servant. God is invested in you, and he expects cultivation. He has given you glory, and when He comes back, He wants more glory. Alright? <clears throat> we are to move from glory to glory, and one of, the, of course, the principal way we do that is in our worshiping life together. 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul talks about this. We move from glory to glory as we live face-to-face together, or face-to-face with one another in worship. And God's Spirit moves between us and He glorifies us. He changes us. And that's a general truth for all. But how does this work out in the life of young men and young women? And let me talk about that as I close out this talk. How do men pursue glory? appreciated Ben's uh, devotion this morning. It's kind of playing into what, I, what I'm doing. I'm not going to talk about film, so, uh, because Ben is really hip. And uh, with films and everything, and I'm an old, I'm a funny dad. Uh, I don't like the new Star Wars anyway, but uh, <laughs> some for those some for those reasons. But how do men pursue glory? We know that we are to seek it patiently, not grasping. 
But we are to seek it. We are to pursue it. So men, don't be passive. Be active where you are, preparing yourself for more glory. Men's hunger and pursuit of glory have to do with his original vocation. And again, this is going to be repeated. We're going to look at it from different angles. But his original vocation to guard and to work. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15, God put man in the garden to do two things. And really everything from there on, there's one more that we could add and I'll, I'll, I'll bring that out. But uh, uh, everything from there on is just the development of these two basic commands for masculinity or for men. To guard and to work. And these things, these things are built into us. They're not just a, a bolted onto our existence. We are created to do these things. It's not just an outside command that comes down out of heaven. We are, we are built to do these things. God command, God, what, God, what God commands, He gives. Alright? And so, men, are, men want power. Men want authority. And that manifests itself in different ways throughout life. Proverbs 17.6, The beauty or the glory of young men is their strength. The adornment or the splendor of old men is their gray head. In order to accomplish glorification, we need power and we need its effects. That is, we need realms, we need domains of rule, and we need domains of influence. We are created to be warriors. The warrior has to be trained and focused, but in many cases, women and mothers, mothers and women in society, as well as effeminized men, have tried to expunge our warrior nests. It's called toxic masculinity now. Our God-given masculine glory has been turned into shame. They've reversed everything. They've turned our glory into shame in society. Godliness, they say, looks more like a woman who is emotionally vulnerable and needs to be guarded rather than aggressive. But we are created as men to engage the world and bring it under dominion. And it's not going to be brought under dominion without a fight. And so we have to wisely and order, orderly tame the world, and we're going to have to fight with it. If guys have not been emasculated, they've been drawn to power. You can recognize this in little boys. That has to be worked out of them, generally by overbearing mothers and by feminized men. Okay? Uh, but it has to be worked out of them because they, they have to look more like a woman. I'm not saying the little toddler boy needs to be able to go wild. His energy needs to be focused. But he wants to be aggressive. If guys have not been emasculated, they're drawn to power, strength in the weight room, dominance in sport, war games, aggressive music, things like that. As we grow older, wisdom becomes our power. Influence to rule and order our worlds. We learn through Christ Jesus that one great act of power is the ability to lay down one's life willingly, knowing that God will glorify you through resurrection. God gave, and Jesus, by the way, didn't, he wasn't a helpless victim. He said, no one takes my life. I lay it down. That's ultimate power. Okay, he's not, he's not being... He's not being emasculated. He's not being the victim here. He said, nobody takes my life. I'm laying it down willingly. This is what I'm doing. I'm in control of this situation. Alright? He is the man in every sense 
of the Word. So, it's a, God gave us this task of guarding and working. He gave, the guard, he gave this task of guarding and working to man before he created the woman. Now, this is important. The order of creation is obvious, obviously important. Paul makes a lot of it. And so he takes dominion by naming the animals before the woman is created. The man is oriented to the world. He has a mission. He pursues the glory of a woman to help him in this mission, but she does not become the totality of his mission. Men who all of a sudden turn when they get married and direct all their energies toward the home, it's a problem. Women who expect their men to do that are going to be very frustrated because man's not created to do that. He's created and he's oriented toward the world. He's, he's created to... The, the world is his mission. He pursues the glory of a woman to help him in this mission. And ladies... That is one of your tasks. Not to define the mission of the home, but to help the man fulfill his mission. Now, the black widow is not going to do that. Right? But that's what God created us to be. That's what God created the man to be. She is the glory of the man. and She is to help him with his mission. Paul says very clearly in 1 Corinthians 11, men, that she was created for the man. Young men, your mission in life is larger than having a wife. A wife is very important to your mission. But the wife is not the totality of your mission. If you understand this and you pursue your mission as a man should, you will find that you're, you will be more attractive to women, by the way. This is the way this works. When you do what God says, somehow it works out a lot better. You have purpose and direction. You know who you are. You know what you're doing. Confidence exudes strength. And women want a strong man. They don't want a wimp. Wimpiness is not godliness. Self-deprecation, shaming yourself, is not glorious humility. Why would a woman entrust her care to a guy who has no strength and who doesn't even believe in himself? Why would she believe in you? Self-deprecation, going around talking bad about yourself all the time, Stop it. Don't do it anymore. Alright? Talk to the guys about that, but don't talk around don't talk like that about uh, talk about yourself like that about around the girls. I'm not talking about being macho, I'm not talking about machismo here. That's an immature expression of strength that is usually a cover up for fear, insecurity. True confidence doesn't have to brag or show off. Talking about strength that carries itself well I'm talking about strength that carries itself well is decisive, takes responsibility, and is confident. It's forward-moving, has a mission, and says, hey, you want to be with me, join me in my mission. Also, there's nothing wrong with hitting the weights a little bit, get a little more muscle on those bones. All right? <laughs> I want you to note, young men, how women are attracted to men in power, or men with power. That power comes in very different forms. I mean, look at President Trump. You see the most gorgeous man you've ever seen? <laughs> now look at his wife. She's pretty knocked out. She's pretty woman. Why does a woman like that marry a man like that? He exudes strength. He has money. He has power. He's very confident. 
One thing our president does not lack is confidence. He may be wrong, but he's never in doubt. (laughs) (laughs) And women are attracted to that kind of strength. They're attracted to athletes, executives, and others. They're not attracted to guys with the highest score on Call of Duty. (laughs) Unless he's a professional gamer making millions of dollars a year doing it. She wants a protector, a provider, a procreator. Generally, if you don't exude that strength, you're not going to attract a woman. And if you do so, she's settling for you. And your marriage is going to be frustrating. Prepare yourself for greater glory by being decisive, having direction in your life, taking care of yourself physically and things as such. Learn how to do stuff. How to swing a hammer, change a tire, do some plumbing. Prepare yourself to take care of stuff so that you can show a lady that she will be able, you will be able to take care of her. Just being a bookworm, an egghead, isn't good enough. I don't care if you know all the characters in the Silmarillion. Okay? That's awesome. But can you do plumbing? Alright? Uh, it's, not, it's not good enough. Even though I like all the Tolkien stuff. Alright? Now, how does a woman pursue glory? Women's desire and pursuit of glory, while aimed in the same general direction as men, takes a different shape. Men initiate and take dominion over things, conquering and building cities. Women complete and beautify. This is shown fundamentally in things such as children coming into the world. Man provides a microscopic seed. The woman receives that, cultivates it for nine months, and here comes a beautiful child. Okay? And that in itself shows you the relationship between men and women. Women take money the man makes, turns them into meals and a beautiful home. Women make things more beautiful, including the man himself. A woman makes a man look good. The woman is created for the man. She has a God-given hunger to be married. That's not to be squelched. To join a man as his helper is in, in mission and have children. That's why she was created. Being married is not the end-all, be-all of life, the only thing that matters, but it is a worthy intention and pursuit, and one to which most of us are called. When I say pursuit, I'm not talking about chasing men, or as I saw in a commercial just yesterday, or a couple of days ago, where a woman's proposing to her her boyfriend, which just hmm, hits you wrong way. I'm not talking about that kind of pursuit, but your pursuit takes a different shape, like being here at a singles retreat in the uh, presence of potential husbands, letting guys know, hey, I'm here. Alright? Nothing wrong with that. You have to be patient as you seek glory, but you must seek it. Preparing yourself for more glory when God is pleased to give it to you. And what does that look like? Well, things... What things can you do to glorify yourself and prepare for more glory? Cultivating godly character. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 4 Our mothers in the faith had a gentle and quiet spirit. Not adopting the lies of feminism today that tell you that you're the same as a man, only with different plumbing. Which, of course, you can change if you feel like a man trapped in a woman's body. You are not geared toward the world. You're not made and geared toward the world in the same way that a man is because God made you gloriously different. And women who, who do that are like trying to run a lawnmower in a swimming pool. Okay? It just doesn't work. They don't, you can run an outboard motor in a swimming pool, but you can't run a lawnmower. 
Because it wasn't made for that. And you're not made for that. You're, qual- you're not qualitatively inferior. You're just different. And that's great. And it's glorious. Guys really think it's glorious. Alright? Learn to live and act like a lady. Learning to become feminine. Not trying to beat the boys at everything. And sometimes, even if you can beat them, you probably shouldn't. Lay off a little bit. Alright? Let men be men. And you bask in the glory of being a woman. And let men bask in the glory of you being a woman. Learn how to respect men, beginning with your father, of course. Understanding and appreciating their place in the world, the way God created them. Don't let your character be developed in a way that despises men. Education. I'm trying to hurry up. I'm talking fast. Y'all just listening slow. So, (laughs) (laughs) So education. Pursue education. If for some reason you never marry, you will need a way to support yourself. That's just practical stuff. But you also need to, you need education that will help you manage a home. And that is, that is more than just learning how to change diapers. That may be dealing with finances, accounting, all sorts of things. That may be starting home-based businesses, investing, taking care of finances in the home, schooling children, and a myriad of other things. So you need education. You need to love God with your mind. Learning how He created and sustains the world so that you can beautify it. Be careful of thinking that you need to be uber-educated. Quite frankly, you're narrowing your possibilities for marriage when you're overly educated. The reality is, ladies, you want to marry up. You want to marry a guy who is stronger than you. Not just physically, but in every way. And if a guy who is worth his salt doesn't want to be competing with his wife all the time. You need to leave room for a man to come into your life. If you're a lifetime student with super advanced degrees, some good, godly, blue-collar dude is, is going to seem far beneath you. And so you've got the top 0.02% of guys out there. And you're narrowing your possibilities. I'm just dealing with reality here. Alright? This is the way things are. And I can deny the way things are. Just like I was talking to somebody last night. So I can deny that these bricks are here. And if I keep running up against it, eventually, I'm going to get a headache. Right? (laughs) Just reality. This is the way things are. So part of your education might also be getting involved in the lives of families and others in the church. Being discipled by a mother by helping her run and beautify her household. This serves her and helps you. Last area. I promise I'll quit. I'm probably over-prepared. The last area I want to deal with in pursuing glory and preparing yourself for more glory isn't taking care of yourself physically, just like I talked with the guys. Here there are two evil twin sisters to avoid. Physical beauty is everything. Physical beauty is nothing. Okay? We're quite familiar with the first. The pervasiveness of bodily image through people like the Kardashians, I guess now she's she's with Kanye in there. Now doing other things. <laughs> but through their history, they emphasize physical beauty is everything. And lots of young ladies set themselves up for depression by setting, setting these bodily images as their own standards. The flip side of this is to say physical beauty doesn't matter. A guy ought to be attracted to me no matter how I present myself. And if he doesn't, that only means he's shallow, lust-filled pig who worships at the idol of physical shape. Well, you can't have a high standard for men and then turn around that they can't have any standard for you. And if they don't like you solely for your personality, then they're mean, shallow, and chauvinistic. 
Granted, looks must not be the sum total of what they want, but it's not wrong when that factors into what men want. Just as it's not wrong when it factors into what you want for a man. Just as you need to be sexually attracted to the man you want to marry, he needs to be sexually attracted to you. Lady, there's nothing, ladies, there's nothing wrong with making yourself attractive to guys. <clears throat> now, there is a righteous art in this that only women can accomplish. It is good to keep yourself in the best shape you can so the guy knows that you actually care about yourself. You, you all don't look the same. That's okay. This is not meant to stir up envy or to, or to bring shame. All right? It is to encourage you to cultivate your glory because each of you is glorious. God has given you a body with which you are to be content, but he's given you a body that ultimately belongs to him and he expects you to be a good steward of it and cultivate it in every possible way. Dressing attractively with modesty is a glorious art. Learn it. Taking off all your clothes and dressing like a whore will get your attention quickly. I don't think that's too much of a problem here. And you know that all it does is bring shame. Cultivating glory takes work. A woman's hair, for example, is her glory. 1 Corinthians 11, 15. And just a little secret, men tend to like women with longer hair because it's biblical. All right? Taking care, they just really like it. It's a reality. Taking care of your hair and beautifying it takes work. It's a lot more work than a man taking care of his hair. Right, Randy? I mean, <laughs> stylishness and makeup aren't bad things. It isn't bad for you to want to be attractive to guys. So don't go to the extremes, both of which are forms of idolatry. But cultivate that which, is God, that which God has given you. Be content with His gift of glory that is your physical appearance and cultivate it. There's no use in denying it. We all crave glory. Having it is what makes life matter. And in Christ you are clothed with glory and because of this you can boldly cultivate the gifts God has given you to be more glorious fulfilling your God-given mission. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the gift of glory. And we pray that you would... Now, help us to be faithful and cultivate these gifts that you have given to us for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.